Hi, my name is Chris and I'm a postdoc within ML4Q and you are listening to ML4Q&A. In this podcast, members of the Matter and Light for Quantum Computing cluster talk about their research as well as other topics and the future of quantum. In today's episode, I'm talking to David Groß about his career path, advising student projects in theoretical physics, teaching quantum mechanics and the Google event he was probably never invited to. David is a professor in Cologne and a vice spokesperson for the cluster. He worked with Jens Eisert in Berlin and followed him to Imperial College in London to do his PhD. Then he did postdocs with Reinhard Werner in Hannover and Matthias Christandl at ETH, became a tenure-track professor in Freiburg to ultimately become a professor in Cologne. He is known for work on random matrix theory, compressed sensing and measurement-based quantum computing, and more generally work in finite phase space. But probably he is most well known for asymptotic freedom and having famous PhD students like Edward Witten and Frank Wilczek. So David, when did you decide to become a theoretical physicist? What was your gateway drug into this business? Yeah, hi Chris, good to be here. Maybe we should explain the Frank Wilczek joke at some point of time. I'm not sure yes. everybody <laughs> got it. <laughs> um, how did I become a theoretical physicist? Oh, I don't know, when do I start? So, um, right, if I go way back, then I have to first say that I'm very suspicious of people who know what they want. So it's not that I decided to become a theoretical physicist early on, but uh, I don't know, I, uh, I finished school and couldn't decide what to do. Luckily, I had like a year of uh, social service still, but then I still couldn't decide what to do. Then I started an engineering class and I quit. I started computer science uh, at university. I quit too. I studied a bit of German literature and then I switched to physics. And uh, right, yeah, and then it was too late to change track. But it was not a very deliberate decision, kind of, you know, I don't know, I got sucked into it. That's very nice. And uh, I, I guess this engineering background is, is also not so bad. I mean, even Dirac started in some ways in engineering, right? So did, did, you, did the engineering influence your early physics thinking? I think so. You know, they say that the other grass is always greener. No? So sometimes I, I meet with engineers and sometimes I work with engineers and I'm always super excited. So, you know, we, we have a project and then what we do, you know, can be used in mobile phones. How cool is that? And they go like, oh, what we do can be used in quantum information. How cool is that, you know? <laughs> so, but definitely, yeah, no, I kind of miss building stuff and having something at the end of the day you can touch. Uh, yeah, it's something I, I'm always excited about. Did you have like a lecture or something that you had and afterwards you were like, okay, I want to become a quantum physicist? So definitely there was like a well-defined time when I quit engineering and decided to enroll in physics. This is a very clear moment and I, I can tell you exactly what the problem was. So, so I was in a, sitting in an electrical engineering class and you would compute the capacity of a capacitor, right? And you do it by integrating the field strength between the two plates, right? And then you get a value. And if you want to do it, you have to smear out the charge equally over the plates. But then there was little David sitting in the lecture theater thinking, yeah, well, but you know, in actuality, charges are little points. And so this approximation to smear it out, it's not okay. So if you then calculate the integral 
between a point charge and a point charge, you always get infinity. And so I, I was confused because there was an inconsistency in our theoretical understanding. So I went to my professor and said, you know, I don't get it. You know, I, I did the calculation differently. I get infinity. So what's up with that? And he was very patient and thought it was like the stupid student and was like, yeah, no, but it's a capacitor. So you have to calculate it like this. And I say, yeah, look, I'm not stupid. I get it. I know how to calculate it. But, you know, there is a consistency issue here. Don't you worry about that. And he was like, look, you calculate the capacity <laughs> by computing this line integral. And then I decided, okay, for our mutual benefit, it's better if I quit, no? Because it's a different way of thinking, no? So he was thinking how, and he knew how to treat the system. And so for him, it was done. And I was thinking in terms of getting more, more the why, right? In terms of getting a consistent understanding. But if you're an engineer and you want to build the next Airbus airliner, you know, if you know how to do it, you're done. You don't have to understand that the thing that pulls the airliner down is resulting from, you know, the geometry of space-time. It's the wrong level of detail. And so, yeah, after this, I quit electrical engineering, I think, for our mutual benefit. So they were annoyed with me. I was annoyed with them. And I think it's been a much better fit in physics. And, and it took two more years before I found in the textbook the little sentence saying, so this infinite capacitance is an artifact of um, the, the infinite self-energy of a point charge. And, you know, there was a, like a, a side note in some textbook saying, an unsolved problem of classical electrodynamics is the divergence of the self-energy of the electron. And I felt at home. No, somebody was acknowledging. Yeah. <laughs> The problem I saw, they also didn't solve it, but I, this was fine. I didn't want to have a solution. I just wanted somebody to say, yeah, there's an issue here. So I guess that really set you up to become a theoretical physicist because from my experience as, a, as an experimental physicist, I often stop at the point where the model that I use sort of just describes the data that I have. But indeed, there's often conceptual problems that, that come in and I usually stop at the point where I get convergence and I don't worry that much about it. But it's, I think we need both kind of ways of thinking. I think, yeah, it's a bit the how versus why distinction at play here too, right? And I think there's the reason for both. Let me be clear, it's not that I think the why thinking is better. It's just, you know, both is important. Like the engineer who actually worries about general relativity will suck as an engineer. It's not a good way of thinking uh, if you want to, you know, get the thing through the door. So then you did a PhD with Jens Eisert and your diploma as well. So uh, that basically put you into the field of uh, quantum information and non-body physics from the start or? Yeah, this was actually the other way around. No, I, so I was studying at uh, TU Berlin and at the time Jens was, had his first junior appointment in Potsdam. So I, I decided I wanted to do quantum information. I was looking for somebody who could, you know, advise me. And there was within 50 kilometers, there was only one person who was Jens. And so I, I uh, drove out to Potsdam, which was a different university. And I said, I want to uh, do a, a thesis here. And then he said, yeah, that's cool. But, you know, I don't have capacity. So sorry, can't do it. And then I just, you know, I just didn't go away. <laughs> I think it was a bit annoying, actually. He was just saying, yeah, look, he was very polite, of course. He was saying, yeah, look, sorry. And I was getting angry because I said, look, this is not how it works, you know. You are a civil servant <laughs> and, you know, you're paid to do quantum information. You're the only one in the region to do it. So you can't just say no to a student, you know, that's outrageous. I don't think this way anymore, but at the time I did. And I just turned up every day and at some point he just gave up and said, okay, fine, here's a thesis. <laughs> and uh, you then followed him to Imperial College, right? Right. Mm -hmm. As a theorist, you do a lot of thinking, right? So you sit around and you ponder a problem until you have some genius idea. That's right. So I moved to London and then my grandmother, she was always asking me, so what do you do? And she couldn't, she had no understanding. No, she, she had no you know, academic background. So she was, was completely opaque to her how I would spend my time. And I, I tried to explain it to her what I did, but she was unconvinced. And then later, my sister translated it to her and she told her, well, David, you know, he's sitting in his office looking at Hyde Park and he's thinking. 
And then she felt okay that she got. She never asked again. <laughs> so your description was pretty much spot on. Yeah, you yeah. sit there and you know think. I find it amazing these kind of theory PhDs. You tackle problems that are generally unsolved, and there's maybe not always a hope that the problem that you're working on is solvable. Like, how was your experience there? Did you just have a lot of problems and you got lucky in finding always ones that were solvable or did you have a lot of problems yeah. that... Right. But I think it's much easier for a theoretician, by the way, than for an experimentalist because you also tackle things that are generally unsolvable. But for you, it takes years to find that out. For us, it usually takes weeks, right? And then we can pivot to something else without needing like 5 million euros of investment. So uh, I have much higher respect for experimentalists. But, um, but it's, of course, a legitimate question. You know, the, there's a very, you know, there's a very thin line between trivial and unsolvable in theory. So every problem you can, can come up with is likely unsolvable, completely hopeless, completely beyond our understanding. That's you know, generically true. And if you're very lucky and have something that can be solved, it's usually trivial. And to find you know, even a question where there is a legitimate hope that it falls in between these two extremes, it's a very difficult problem. Maybe the most difficult. I think asking the right questions is much harder than, than finding answers to it. It's, by the way, also what we see in advising students. They, they can solve problems, but to identify problems, that's much harder. They can, they can learn this much later. That maybe gets to the core of my question, because you have a, an advisor, Jens yeah. Eisert, who, yeah. uh, who you go to and you say, I think this problem is interesting. And, okay, and so then he says, Okay, so then, of course, so this is, I think, you know, this is the primary service, I think, of a theory academic advisor is selecting a problem. That is the service they provide. And so in my case, it was also very clear from the very beginning. Actually, we started with my PhD, which is continuing with the same problem that also started my master's. And it was on a paradigm of quantum computation that had just been recently discovered back then and was very much uh, hyped and it's still important and it's called measurement-based quantum computation. Maybe I can explain that. So a, a computation we think of as some dynamical process, right? Think of, you know, like, like in one of these mechanical computing machines you can find in the museum, no? You set the input and then, you know, levers move, you know, and this somehow processes information and in the end, you know, some light flashes and there it is. So you can now ask, so where has the computation, you know, where was it done? And it's natural to, you know, identify it with this dynamical process of, you know, one lever hitting the next and, you know, some current being triggered, I don't know. And so this dynamical picture is also how we started to think about quantum computation. So what is a quantum computation? It's a sequence of modifications of quantum data and a modification is here a quantum gate, yeah, so a well-defined unitary time evolution. Yeah, but you would also think about it in this, you know, consecutive processing kind of way. And then there was a huge discovery by Hans Priegel and Robert Rausendorf in early 2000s that you can have a much more static setup and it has the same computational power. And so this, the setup is this, you take one quantum state of, of a many-body system and you do nothing but perform local measurements. So you take one particle after the next and you measure it. And based on the measurement outcomes, you select what to measure next and which particle and in which basis. But there's no dynamics anymore. And they proved it was equally powerful, right? And that was conceptually, this was a big breakthrough just because, you know, it felt completely different. You know, the, the entire term of quantum information processing, you know, the processing is a dynamical thing. But, you know, the, it, it somehow had the same computation power without the ING term. No, there was nothing being inked. <laughs> it just sat there statically and you read out the result. And at the time, there was only one example known of a state that had this power, the so-called cluster state, nothing to do with the cluster of excellence, which is called the cluster state. And, uh, and so, you know, the question I got asked on day one of my master thesis or diploma, as it used to be called, was, that's weird. You know, it's unlikely that there's only one state. Find another one. So that was 
that was the question. And in my uh, in my diploma, I, I did not find one. So I did not. It was you know still like a one-year thesis back then, no? And I had one year, and I couldn't find one. It was also one of these open-ended questions that students are usually bad at. It was not calculate this function and plot it in the interval of you know which you know I usually that's how I start a master thesis. No, I give something like this so that people don't fail, and then if they do it in three weeks, we can still move on to the more conceptual ones. So I, I got asked this question, and I think it was it was too hard for me. I don't know. I, I didn't have the tools. I didn't even know how to get started. And so uh, it's interesting because what I did then is I kind of like got sidetracked. And uh, I, I read this old, you know, Rausendorf and Peeble papers, and I found, you know, they use this language of what we call today, you know, stabilizer codes, which are used in, in fault-tolerant computation. And there was some open problems there, and I kind of got sucked into this and ended up writing my thesis about a completely different question than what my task was. But then we, we visited it in, in for, the, for the PhD, and, and then we, we found you know, new models. And now you're saying, ah, what are you known for? And I think what, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about this, what I was known for in the beginning was, you know, we were the people, or my advice and me, we were the people who could generalize the cluster state and find new models. But, but okay, so to summarize your question, so there's like, how do you find projects? So there's like, and do you have many or not? So there's, here's the answer. So one, I mean, it's the primary task of the advisor to select one. And I was very lucky in, in you know, being provided with a question that, you know, a lot of people were interested in. So when we did succeed, suddenly, you know, a lot of people were interested. And one that was eventually solvable, even though it was maybe solvable in the beginning. But also, you get stuck. And then you have the privilege as a theoretician that you can just you know pivot to something that is kind of related and you know prove yourself there and and answer the question there, and you know no, no major investment is necessary. So the, the answer is both: the advisor selects, but also you have probably many of which most don't work, and a few do. So cool. Uh, just a comment from me about your career path. You started with Jens Eisert, and then afterwards you went to Reinhard Werner, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe this is my impression of them. I have not really met either of them, but I've read a little bit of their work. And I would say that they seem very different oh, yeah, uh, yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like yes. with Jens sort of being yeah. on a more pragmatic side of the spectrum and Werner being like a very philosophical almost uh, guy. Did this really influence you at the time? Did you make this as a conscious choice? Sure, sure, of course. Yeah, no, no. I mean, they, it's funny that you call Jens pragmatic because, of course, he's also, you know, one of the, you know, theoreticians who's more removed from the dirty business than most people are. So uh, on the spectrum, he's already pretty far on the mathematical side. But of course, Reinhardt is way out there. You know, uh, you said philosophical. Pr primarily, he's just an old school mathematical physicist with a solid education in functional analysis and publications in functional analysis journals, no? Who understands his operator algebras. And, and of course, they work extremely, extremely differently. Right. I mean, being a bit torn between, you know, more pragmatic approach and more mathematical approach is something that I've always been. And yeah, so I wanted to, you know, after the PhD, I wanted to test, you know, how, how I would harmonize with, you know, an honest-to-God mathematical physicist. So yeah, it was a conscious decision, and I think it was good to learn both styles. They are extremely different along many diff various axes, you know, <laughs> of, of, you know, the human existence, and mathematical versus pragmatic is one of them, but there's many more. Maybe to, to finish this section about your sort of formative time, what do you enjoy most about the work, and from the PhD to now, how has your work changed? What I do enjoy most, I mean, this, like, nerdy, experience of getting something you know that's i think that's why we are in business no if not we could go to industry and earn much more money it's you know sitting down and you know looking at a hard problem and seeing how your understanding chips away on it and makes it easier and easier and clearer and clearer and suddenly bang you have a nice picture and ideally you can use your improved understanding to now do things that other people failed 
uh, before. This is a choice why we do it. No, why we, I can't see any other reason. Maybe a few, but you know that's the main one. And how has it changed? Well, of course, as you you know grow older, you get further away from the actual dirty work of actually you know tackling hard problems, and you're more moving into or being pushed into. I don't know a bit of both a, a management role. And everybody complains about this. Everybody complains about this. Few people do something decisively about it, which of course means maybe the complaints aren't honest. I don't know, but I would also complain about it. But also I don't do anything decisively about it. So maybe I'm not honest to myself. I don't know. So then maybe you already said management. So we should maybe talk a little bit about ML4Q. So how did you get involved with ML4Q and what is your role in the cluster? And how do you see science management maybe then in the broader context? Oh dear, yeah, that's a big topic. You see, this excellence initiative is extremely important for universities. You know, it's how you know they define their profile, how a lot of funding goes to the university. But it's not just that. It's not actually primarily about funding. It's, Germany is a, is a weird, um, has a weird education landscape that is very much unlike, I think, most other successful science nations. In that in Germany, traditionally, there was not a big difference between the universities in their perception. It, it really didn't matter which university you attended for your further career. Just compare that to the US, no? where at the age of 17, major, or France, for example, or the UK, you know, where at the age of 17, a major shift, people get sorted into tracks, added university, you know, second tier versus, you know, community college, I don't know. And we didn't have that, right? And this egalitarian system in Germany had many advantages and many disadvantages. Yeah, it had, the big advantage is that, you know, 16-year-olds don't spend time, you know, on fake extracurricular activities so that they can impress some admissions officer. So we don't, you know, waste our time when we are 16 on this. There's also negative sides in that it's very difficult to attract the top international researchers because they want to work at a top international school. And, you know, the US has them. In Germany, you know, not so much. And certainly back then it didn't. Okay, so uh, there was a political decision that we should move away from the German egalitarian system and designate, you know, some universities as being, you know, more excellent <laughs> than the rest, you know. And the downsides were deemed to be less important than the potential upsides. So I'm, I'm saying all this because, you know, to explain why this is such a big thing. So it's, I don't think it's actually about the, the funding primarily. Of course, it makes a lot of things possible, but it's about being, you know, in this race that now started, you know, to, you know, you want to be in this elite pack of universities who stand out. It, it used to be called, yeah, the, the word elite used to be used. It kind of like people discontinued in, term, in, in favor of excellence, but uh, elite universität no, used to be the, the term. Okay, so, so then, of course, when, you know, the next round of the Excellence Initiative showed up on the horizon, you know, everybody was asked to consider what do you have that is competitive. And in Cologne, in the region, in Aachen, in Bonn, in Jülich, there has been a lot of investment into quantum science in the years prior, and we felt now we had a critical mass, and the, the topic uh, excited people, and also we could, maybe we didn't collaborate so closely in the past, but now we could say, yeah, a lot of new people had been hired recently, so we could, you know, make a case that, you know, Things have changed and now was the right time. And so it was just from a political perspective, it was just clear that this is one of the topics that we would have a chance of being successful. And so then all the people who could naturally contribute to it got together and you know I was of course one of them. Right. So that's how I got, you know, sucked into it. <laughs> and yeah, what's my role now? I don't know. There's some different hats I, I have on my head. There's some science to be done, but also, you know, yeah, I'm also involved a lot in just steering this big tanker. You know, there's a lot of, yeah, it's still a very big project, no? There's tens of millions of euros that are being spent over the project period. And, you know, we are accountable to the taxpayer. 
and, and so they need to be well spent. Yeah, there's this cycle of science funding. No, first you don't get to do research because you have to write a proposal, and then when, when you're lucky, you get the money, and then you don't get to do research because you have to, you know, spend the money in a way that, that is sensible. It's a lot of work. So, and Jülich might become a quantum hub. I don't know what's the, the political status of this, but let's say they will have a larger quantum computer. Yeah. Would this be something exciting for you to play with from a theory side or? Right. Okay. So that's now a completely d different set of questions. A very important topic, no? Because we're seeing um, an enormous change of the character of the field. I was talking with Dagmar Poos on the phone just yesterday, where we reiterated this point. When we started, or when I started, only ten years ago. It's not such a long time ago, yeah, or a bit longer. The quantum information was kind of like the absurd uh, spinner, you know, crackpot tea adjacent pastime that people kind of, I don't want to say laughed, but at, but but it certainly it wasn't at the center of physics. yeah. And this had advantages and disadvantages. The obvious disadvantage is that it was very difficult, for example, to get positions for the first people, right? Because there was no, you know, quantum information labels on faculty position. Totally different situation today where you, you know, have trouble recruiting. But back then this was a big problem. Uh, but also it, it meant one had a lot of freedom. Yeah, because, uh, you know, all the serious people weren't really looking too closely and one had a bit of freedom to explore something that was completely novel and, and yeah, Narrenfreiheit, I don't know how to say that in English, no, the freedom to explore without being held to the standards of a professional. Okay, and this is now changing completely and it's changing very fast and changing in the last, I don't know, three, four years, maybe not, maybe not longer actually. And now the big industry players are moving in and the big research centers are moving in and the big yeah, politically savvy people are becoming important and they are guiding millions and hundreds of millions and the orders of magnitudes has of funding has completely changed. And again, this comes with advantages and disadvantages. So the advantage obviously is now suddenly, you know, it might become real. And in a way, again, funding is actually now minor, like uh, less of a concern. If you have a good idea, you'll get the money. It's, I mean, maybe not easily, but it's not impossible now. Yeah, but but also it changes the character of the field a lot. You know, there's a lot more pressure on, you know, having results and being practical. And again, the kind of questions change. You know, before, you know, if you found the most elegant mathematical thing, this is, you know, how you got credibility in the community. And that's a bit irrelevant now because now it's an engineering problem. So it's not like the most elegant construction for an asymptotic code, but it's, you know, this machine, it has 200 things and this error model now do something, you know. The output is not an ideal platonic model. The output is a bunch of numbers. Yeah, so it's very different. And I'm, I'm a bit torn, you know? I mean, it's, it's obviously it's fantastic, you know, I mean, I know it's great, but also, you know, there's a bit of a, a sentimental side to me that kind of looks back at the good old days when we could, you know. Yeah, what I find interesting about your work and this noisy intermediate scale quantum computers, which is basically somewhat crappy quantum computers, right? Like they, they, are, not, they are not good enough to, let's say, factor a number, but they are maybe good enough to give you some output that is hard to achieve classically. Okay, so SCQC instead of NISQ. Yeah. Yes. Somewhat crappy quantum computer. Yes. I like that. Yeah, okay. um, so um, <laughs> not completely shit. But these systems are mathematically quite interesting. And a lot of the work that you have done on a more mathematical side, I would say, becomes very important in these systems, right? Can you elaborate on that? Okay, I'm not super sure that's true, that a lot of work I did becomes very important for those, but I agree with you that, that there is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of non-trivial mathy questions also about these NIST computers. And in computer science, there's two contradictory or two, you know, complementary approaches. You can design algorithms or you can try to prove that algorithms don't exist. 
Yeah, it's, it's very different skill set, by the way. Totally different people working with this using totally different methods. And now if we want, if somebody, you know, puts, puts you in front of the console of, you know, I don't know, a 200 qubit noisy quantum computer, suddenly you have two things you can spend your day with. You can either try to say, okay, let's see, what can I do with it? These algorithms that are well understood, like, you know, factoring, but it's completely hopeless. So then there is um, heuristic problems where it's plausible that the thing might be of utility, for example, finding properties of quantum chemical systems. Yeah, and you could try to improve that and try to, you know, design algorithms that, you know, will likely use the power of that computer. But you probably can't prove it, you know. It's very difficult to prove that you have an advantage. It's very difficult. So it's, it's probably the gap is not big enough. So, so you end up running heuristics and you, there's always the, the risk that, you know, whatever quantum chemical system you manage to run on this computer, somebody else comes, you know, calls you a day later and say, I have my, my, you know, my iPhone and I found a new algorithm. I can now also do it. Yeah. Or you can spend your day trying to do the opposite and be like the, the spoiler or something. You know, can, you can try to prove that the computer in its current iteration can't actually outperform um, a you know, state-of-the-art classical system. And in particular in the second, no, I don't know, in both. There's, there's interesting math in both. Maybe there's more rigorous math in the second, in the negative approach actually, right? Because, uh, so, so how would you prove that a quantum computer, a noisy one, is of no direct value? You would find a classical simulation for it that's efficient. You know, if you could do this, it's game over. So, so there I think there's many interesting questions. And in particular because, here's by the way what makes it hard. What makes it hard is the role of noise. In particular, correlated noise. I think that's very interesting, no? Because correlated noise it's, it has two contradictory effects. One, it induces correlations because it's correlated noise and, and tracking these correlations might be difficult. Yeah, but two, it's noisy. <laughs> and so no noisiness means it becomes more classical, so it should be easier to check on a classical computer. And, but the correlation makes it difficult, so how do you balance the two against each other? So there's very interest interesting questions about is, this. Is there, is there a problem in the quantum case? Because the kind of correlations that you can have in a quantum system are sort of a little bit more complicated than what you could have in a classical yeah, yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, well, okay, so I, I, I don't think that's super relevant. So, of course, you know, in quantum systems you can have, you know, these Bell-like correlations, which are, you know, the, the source of all our excitement about the philosophical impact of quantum theory, but it's not the same kind of correlations that I mean here. It's, uh, it's you know, you have, you have an, an, an impact, some noise impacts one qubit, and then the next gate is, is an entangling qubit, and it will delocalize the effect of the noise. Right, and this is, you know, um, yeah, it's not the kind of correlation that allows you to violate Bell inequality, but it's the kind of correlation that makes it hard for you to, to you know, to error correct or to classically simulate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the error correcting code ba are based on some sort of redundancy, mm -hmm. meaning if you have noise that sort of <laughs> has the right symmetry with respect to your redundancy, I guess you are never protected from it. There are certain kinds of correlated noise that you can just yeah, that's always true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, an, an error correcting code can only work against you know a given model of noise, and if you know real system does not comply with that, then good luck. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. um, just to talk a little bit about benchmarking. So, if you want to benchmark a quantum computer, so you have to sort of come up with something that you can efficiently classically compute, and there usually this Clifford group pops up again and again. And then on the other hand, you need to do a lot of statistical analysis to show that the thing that you measure in the end, which is lots of zeros and ones, actually 
converges or gives you a meaningful value that really relates to a sort of error syndrome that you want to find or uh, the goodness of your quantum computer. Do you think there's a lot more work there to be done? Will there be still theoretical breakthroughs and will the small quantum computers help? Okay, yeah, so it's a topic I worked on a lot in the past and there's in fact various different problems, you know. How do we verify that a quantum computer does what we expect of it? Yeah, and how do we, if it fails to do so, you know, how can we find the precise way in which it fails? <laughs> yeah. And the first one is difficult because, I mean, a priori it's not clear that it works because we have weak classical machines that should certify a strong quantum machine. So that, that raises fundamental problems. Is that even possible? Can, can a weaker machine certify the, the workings of a stronger machine or not, and under which assumptions? So that's, uh, that's very interesting. I think it's partly, um, this is a theoretical problem. I don't think these, these very hard theory questions are super relevant to, to practical implementation. There was a breakthrough like two years ago, you know, of a paper that, you know, showed how you can, under, you know, um, mild complexity theoretic assumptions prove that a quantum computer does something non-classical. And then, you know, a guy from this German computer magazine, CT, called me and wanted to get an explanation because they wanted to write this article saying, you know, now we can finally trust quantum computing in the cloud. And in the end, he did not publish the article because, you know, we had a very long discussion and he was a bit disappointed because in the end, the result was way more technical and maybe less practically relevant than he thought. Yeah, so I think the certification business from a practical point of view is not so super important because, you know, the question is, can you trust the output of your quantum computer, for example? This is not so very important because in the end, if it, if it starts solving your problems, if it starts, you know, computing ground state energies or, you know, spitting out factors of RSA keys, you know, then, then you don't need any theory anymore. So it's, it's a very pragmatic test. So you're not going to start a startup to advise early quantum computer how to do this? Uh Well, there so is such a startup, by the way, but yeah, yeah, by, no, by people I know quite well. So, and that, but they they actually solve different problems. Then, so the first problem is, you know, in principle, how can I convince that my quantum computer does what it's supposed to be doing? And somebody who's you know operating it in the cloud doesn't you know sell me a fake service where in the end they use their iPhone to to simulate all my inputs, and if not, they just you know guess their iPhone can't do it. So this I think is very interesting theoretically, but not so super interesting practically. Practically, of course, it's more down to earth. You have You know, you have a quantum system and you have some primitives that you you think you know what they do, but probably they don't do this exactly. So how can you certify this? And this is very much, it's an engineering problem. Yes. Yeah, and it's easy for classical computers because classical the components are gates, which are very simple objects. Yeah, I don't know, an OR gate has two inputs and one output, and the output is one exactly if the two inputs are one. And there's four different inputs. and You know, you can just test them and, and they either work or don't. So there's not much to, to think about. In quantum, you know, um, the simplest gate is, I don't know, a two qubit unitary. Yeah. <laughs> and this has, if, it, if you know it's unitary, yeah, already it, it acts on a four dimensional Hilbert space. So it has like roughly 16 parameters, but you don't know that it's unitary. <laughs> Yeah, so it actually is noisy, so there's even more, and you can't access them directly because um, you, you can actually access only, you know, you can only do probabilistic experiments and you can only gather statistics about it. And now you have this, you know, it's a classical start, start estimation problem. You have an inverse problem, you know, that uh, you want to estimate the parameters of your process and you, you only have probabilistic access and more so, you know, your preparation and your read readout operations themselves might not be well characterized, so you don't even know what you're measuring, and it just gets very dirty. And uh, this is a problem wh where I think, um, you know, a lot 
of consultancy service will be needed because yeah, the, the inverseness of the problem is just beyond you know, the reach of what we teach you know, physicists in general and experimental physicists in particular. And so yeah, this I think is a very practical problem where maybe not very super deep insights are left anymore. But I certainly think you know, these colleagues running the consultancy, I don't think they will run out of business. No, for sure not. So what's your advice to young researchers? I, I guess like if you go into these kind of startup things, then you have to solve very concrete problems and you lose sort of this, um, what you talked about before, that you can just get to the bottom of a problem at sort of your own pace in academia. And of course that goes away, like you have to then get to the solution of a problem on the timescale of experimentalists, which says like a year or two. So yeah, how do I advise young researchers? That is something I, where the answer has changed completely over the past few years. Yeah, what I tell them today is completely different from what I said a few, few years ago. Because now you say, ah, you know, there's a difference between academia and industry. But I mean, the most important thing is now there is industry. This didn't used to be the case just, you know, five years ago. There was no alternative career option outside of academia. And uh, so I think, you know, this is the, the, the aspect one should first appreciate, that now people suddenly have a, a choice and they can go to, I don't know, Silicon Valley and uh, earn an enormous amount of money and get food provided to them in the Google cafeteria and still work on quantum. You know, and this didn't used to be the case. So uh, is, is, the, is the daily work there very different? So, okay, first, I don't really know because, of course, I've never worked there. But now I talk to many people who do. And maybe it's not actually so clear-cut. I mean, so these big companies, they have deep pockets. They, they af can afford to have a few people around to also, you know, think about problems that don't have an immediate impact on the experimental setup. So I don't know. I mean, the colleagues I talk to who now work for, you know, North American quantum companies. I mean, do I get more time to ask fundamental questions than they? I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this. So, uh, yeah, they, I mean, they have constraints in their job. I have constraints in my job. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. Okay, maybe a change of pace. And we're going to do a few lightning round questions where you have two choices and you just choose between those two choices quickly. So one, one or two. Wow. Let's get started with some, some non-physics stuff. Uh, okay. Cologne, Köln or Berlin? Oh, 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 can I score? Oh, man. Can I take this? All right, this is, a very, this is <laughs> close to my heart. Also, my wife is from Berlin. And so, for example, you could ask her. I can kind of tell you what the answer is. <laughs> um, um, right. Oh, wow. I can. Okay, let, let's move on. There's a, a lot of baggage in that question. Kölsch or Pilsner? Oh, Pilsner. That's obvious. Kölsch is such a ridiculous. Do you identify as a physicist or as a mathematician? I, uh, oh, you're, you're pushing my buttons. You know how to do it. Here's a big secret. I don't, you know, like to talk about it so much, but. Well, I'm, a, I'm an applied mathematician with a good physics education. I think that's what describes me best. Okay. Do you prefer Einstein or Bohr, the, the man? I don't know. The team Einstein is a, you know, is a good horse to bet on always. Uh, Heisenberg or Schrodinger, the picture? <laughs> the picture? <laughs> um, I think I'm more natural a Schrodinger picture person, but I'm, I've had enough exposure to operator algebra is that I feel bad about it. So well, we asked before about the differences between, you know, Jens, Eisert and Reinhard Werner. No, I mean Jens is Schrödinger and Reinhard is Heisenberg. And I'm more Schrödinger, but I, you know, I think I shouldn't be. One world or many worlds? <laughs> um, one world, though, though I have a lot of sympathies for many worlds. Quick uh, uh, in between, uh, do you think the wave function is real? Yes or no? I think no is a better answer than yes, but really it's not that simple. Schwarz or Grover algorithm? Well, I mean, th there's no 
choice. No, I mean, sure is, of course, you know, but Grover would agree, you know, the one is much deeper than the other. Uh, NISC or quantum error correction? Uh, here's, by the way, what I always, what I thought for a long time, maybe it's wrong. I, do you know that error correction was actually developed by, you know who developed it? Error correction for computation? Sure. No, von Neumann. Yeah, because that's partly true because von Neumann invented basically everything there is. Ah, uh, so classical error correction. Yes, uh -huh, okay, exactly. Yeah. So I, he also invented the mathematical formalism of quantum mechanics, but he invented classical error correction. It was a big thing, you know, people didn't believe in sustaining long calculations classically and without errors because, you know, hardware was buggy. And so he invented classical error correction for computation. And then it got never used because the gates got better. And so for a long time, I thought that this might be something that will repeat that um, in the end error correction has a theoretical value as in showing us that we are not just building an analog computer which can't be error corrected but that you know there is actually a computational advantage in quantum but it will not become realistic until we can improve the gate so much that we don't need it like in classical computation it was important to show as a mathematical insight it was very important but computing could only take off after it was no longer necessary so for a long time i thought this maybe i'm getting more upbeat about error corrected quantum computers in the end. Yeah. It's certainly, I like this much, it's much more the way I think, you know, I know, okay, so to answer your question, uh, error correction over, over NISC. So again, let's switch gears a little bit. And I thought that we could also talk briefly about teaching quantum mechanics, because it's ah. something that we can all sort of relate to. Yeah. And I sort of have a few of my own opinions about this topic. I, yeah. I, I just recently was a TA on a quantum mechanics class. And should we as the cluster also try to improve teaching in quantum mechanics, get together on this maybe. And do you think that we can improve teaching by infusing more quantum information into quantum mechanics? So firstly, let me defend the cluster. The cluster is already improving teaching, of course. You know, we have a lot of activities there. And just as we speak, you know, our platforms lecture on quantum technologies is taking place again. So, I mean, we definitely have done our homework here. So then um, we are not, you're now talking about, you know, quantum mechanics one, you know, the third semester you have these young people coming in and that's why they studied physics and now you know the lecture hall door closes and now you're there with them and now you got to do something and so one idea that everybody has at some point of time is you know we should do more quantum information based stuff because it's all low dimensional and you can look at the concepts without having to worry about the, the technical difficulties of you know having infinite spaces yeah where a lot of time gets expended worrying about i don't know functional analysis that is really irrelevant to quantum mechanics. Exactly, like in the beginning students have to learn what is a wave function and how to, how to deal with this. Yeah. And writing this down in a very abstract way actually yeah. is very difficult. So look, so I was once fervently believing what you, what you now indicate, that we should you know, throw out all this you know, fun functional analysis stuff because it's really incidental to the problem and it obscures the essence and we should you know, teach them the statistical content of the theory from finite dimensional examples. I'm no longer so sure. So one, it caters to my personal preferences, which is always dangerous as a teacher. No, it's kind of, it's, it's a way that works for me, for sure. But um, one thing you learn if you teach undergraduate stuff is that what is difficult for you and what is difficult for the students are very different things. And the students, they come in and they have an intuitive understanding, for example, of, of waves. You know, they know they've like watched waves on the pond, they know what it feels like and they understand the math because this has been drilled into them. And they are super happy, you know, to solve the Schrodinger equation 
for wave function, that makes them happy. And if I tell them about statistical stuff and, I don't know, Bell theorem for qubits, they are much less happy often. Or I don't know, there's a subset of students for whom that works much less well. What I learned, you know, teaching quantum mechanics at an undergraduate level was kind of to work against my own instincts and not forget the considerable subclass of students who are much more comfortable with, you know, complex functions and, and the first order differential equation than they are with the, you know, statistical concepts and, and you know. So, so I think so, there's, yeah. Yeah, there, there's sort of three broad ways to, to go into quantum mechanics, right? There's the phenomenological approach to say, okay, there's certain problems that we yeah. couldn't solve and then Einstein came and solved a lot of them and then other people came and cleaned up the rest. Then there's also the historical approach, which sort of matches, to some extent those two approaches match, but there's, and I, I guess the, the general teaching style is a mix out of teaching phenomena and how quantum mechanics solved them and explaining the historical development of the theory. Yeah. And the third concept is of course this sort of axiomatic approach yeah. to quantum mechanics, mm. where you say, okay, what is quantum mechanics? And you maybe start with something like a qubit and you say, Quantum mechanics gives you the following rules for yeah. the time evolution and for the measurements. I, I think eventually maybe what we just have to do is we have to do all these three yes, approaches. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. This is how it has to be done. It used to be just the first and then people wanted to overcompensate and do just quantum information and the last. And I think in the end there has to be a synthesis. By the way, I'm scheduled to start the, the introductory quantum mechanics in a few weeks again. And I, I'm going to do it for the third time here in Cologne. And I'm, I'm still revising my, my, my lecture notes and I will do it again differently from the last two times. And you know, one thing, by the way, I'm now, I, I have included now is that you know, in the first week I will talk about uh, probability theory. Yeah, uh, which I think is, is um, of course, baked into the theory and it's dangerous because people have kind of an intuitive understanding, but it's not well grounded. <laughs> and I think a lot of, you know, trouble understanding, uh, in particular the axiomatic approach, is that people first need to get a good feeling and or, I mean, it's not, I, I don't do, you know, Kolmogorov axioms, I don't do it very, but just to repeat again, what is the what is the setup that that you know we, we use about to talk about classical probabilities? Oh, by the way, here's a test I can do because you are asking me all this question. That's unfair. Let me ask you a question. So, what if I say you know this event has probability you know two two thirds? What does that mean? You know, what's the meaning of a probability statement? What's the interpretation of a probability? You no, know, people talk about interpretations of quantum mechanics, and there's you know fights and friendships break up over it and stuff. But a lot of the debate is actually, you know, differences in implicit understanding of what a probability means. So it's also something I've already written up in my internal lecture notes for, you know, starting in, in, in April. Within the first week, there will be one page introducing interpretations of probability theory. And uh, yeah, I think it's important. And I think many physicists have never really thought about it. So have you, do, do, do you, could you know, could you, I mean, you use no, probability statements all the time. Do you, do you know, do you, do you have, um, can you, you know, verbalize what they mean to you. I would say I'm a pragmatic on this side. I have to think about this a lot in my experiment because uh, when I do my experiments, I usually have, let's say, a qubit and I experiment with it, which means that I actually repeat the same experiment a lot of times on one qubit. Yeah. Now, what you could also do is you could have many qubits and uh, do the experiment at the same time on many qubits. In any case, you need to do it a lot of times to, for probability to even make sense. For a single run of the yeah. For, 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 I mean, let's say, let's say you could only do it once. Yeah. Um, you, you would never be able to measure a probability that you don't know to begin with. 
Somebody comes in the lab and holds a gun to your head and said, okay, Chris, sit down. Uh, you have to run an experiment once and it has two outcomes, spin up or spin down. I'm pretty good at quantum mechanics, says the person. I compute it. He says, I computed the probability. It's 99.99% spin up. Make your choice. And now if I take you at your word, you just said, oh, but there's no meaning. Probability has no meaning in a single run. I only get a single run, so up or down doesn't matter. No, no, of course uh, not. It's I mean, probably not what you would do, no? But why? Why? What is the philosophical foundation of that, you know? I mean, but, but I think it just illustrated my point. It, by the way, you can't, can't resolve that now because that's a debate where, you know, scholars have fought over for yeah, years, exactly, at least yeah. 100, 100 years. So, but, but for example, this distinction, you know, do probabilities only make sense in an asymptotic setup or do they make sense before that? And if so, how? How do we think about this? I, these are non-trivial questions. And, exactly. and, and people usually, even yeah, working physicists, usually don't have a consistent worldview. And you can trip them up because they make a confident statement, like saying, oh, your single-use probabilities mean nothing. And then you put the gun to the head, and then suddenly they mean something. Yeah? And I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying there is a very fundamental question that we use all the time that we don't often have a consistent way of thinking about. And uh, I think that's important, you know, to tell them about. Yeah, I mean, it's also in experiments. I mean, what we give in the end is often a number and maybe an error bar on the number, if we are good experimentalists. <laughs> and of course, there's already a lot of stuff about probability that is implied, namely Gaussian. It's even uh, worse. Stuff. No, no, it's even worse because ah, this is another one of my pet peeves. We've just pivoted from probability to statistics. Yes, yeah, which is much, it's even much worse. It's even much more complicated. There's even more fights about, you know, how to think about statistics than how to think about probability. But probability theory, at least people get some education maybe in physics at some point of time. But statistics is usually completely ignored. This is completely bizarre, by the way. We have a empirical science and we don't teach people statistics, yeah? which all the other empirical sciences, every other empirical science, they spend a lot of time on that. You know, you go to, a, you, you attend a psychology class and they get a much better education, like orders of magnitude better education in mathematical statistics than does a physicist, you know, uh, who like to think of themselves as more mathematically sophisticated, not there. And I claim that the majority of people who publish error bars do not know what they mean. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would, I, I have to say that I often, yeah. Um, for, I ran into this problem myself when I was working a little bit on uh, trying to make entanglement. Yeah. And at the time we, we had two qubits and we entangled them and we measured them a lot of times. And from yeah. all these measurements of the qubits, you reconstruct the underlying qubit state, right? Yeah. So, I mean, every measurement outcome gives you a voltage and you call this voltage zero or one, depending on uh, where it falls. Uh, unfortunately, it's even two voltages, which makes it uglier because you have to draw a dividing line between zero and one in a two-dimensional plane rather than a, a ah, okay. one-dimensional plane, which <laughs> right. is uh, even, even uglier. It's, 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 yeah. it's surprisingly uh, complicated. And then eventually, of course, you have this reconstructed quantum state. And now you have to give error bars on this state. Now, the funny thing is if you say fidelity of some value, which is sort of the closeness of the state to a target state that you want, let's say. Um, as you get towards high fidelities, of course, your error bars don't make complete sense anymore. Let's say you have a 99% fidelity. You can't say 99 plus minus 1%. That sort of starts to become a, a bit fishy. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I have to say, as, an exp as a dumb experimentalist, uh, we sort of bootstrapped our way around this. We uh, looked at it and we, we tried to give asymmetric error bars. But indeed, uh, I, I would say that 
for experimental physicists, this is a huge challenge. And th there's maybe not a good, a good way to get help with this. Because if you go to a theoretical physicist and you want help from them, good. you usually need to find an interesting problem. And these problems of, of statistics, they are, not, they are interesting problems. And they are often subtle and, and quite difficult. And in statistics, even the theoretical physicists don't understand the theory. So you yeah. probably have to go to, I don't know, an economist, actually. Yeah, go to an economist. Exactly. No, I mean, I'm not kidding you. The economists, they have the quantitative education that they can teach it to you. The psychologists maybe know more stuff than we, but maybe they can't, you know, use the right language. As, you know, you know, I'm not talking about an individual psychologist, but, you know, as a you know, property of this class of people. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, go to an economist. That would be my advice if you want to know. No, that's, it's a good point to, uh, to segue into another uh, topic that I have on my, in my notes here. Maybe to finish off, like in this teaching of quantum mechanics, should students learn about Bell inequalities? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Which, which is often sort of a topic that is skipped, right? It's and the topic that is skipped because also I think many working physicists can't teach it very well just because they never learned it and it's not part of their daily work. And it's also, this is, yeah, how to teach this, by the way. There are also very strong opinions about it. Maybe we can talk about a bit about it. Because I think it's also often taught not in the way I think it should be taught. So one thing that is very important about Bell inequalities is very important is that it's not about quantum mechanics. But to even get this into people's head is difficult. If so often when you, you know, re read an account by a physicist about Bell inequality, they would start, for example, they start with, you know, uh, conservation of total spin or something, you know, as a way of explaining this anti-correlation. Yeah, you get like a spin zero state and then you measure spin at distant particles and then by, you know, coupling of angular momenta, you know, you, you get this anti-correlation. But this is an absurdly irrelevant aspect of the story. The entire point of Bell inequality is that it is a statement it's, it's a negative statement. You know, it tells you that if you see certain patterns in your data, then no classical explanation is compatible with the universe. That is a statement. It has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics just tells us where to look. But you don't need to understand quantum mechanics in order to, to, to accept the conclusions of Bell theorem. The best you should do is, before you even learn it, to forget everything about quantum. It has nothing to do with quantum. Well, nothing to do is a bit too strong, but it's better it's a better side to err on <laughs> than to talk about, you know, I don't know, coupling of angular momentum. Okay, then just to finish up, we still have to um, resolve the joke from the very beginning. Uh, I guess I don't know if you've ever uh, met Frank Wilczek or the other David Gross. I have not, but I've exchanged many emails uh, with the other David Gross. Ah, because uh, somebody <laughs> wrote an email to you. Okay, yeah, maybe we should, you know, like introduce people to the background. There is, um, so, so by the time, around the time I published my first paper, you know, a Nobel Prize was awarded to David Gross, um, who's not me. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, um, there's been confusions ever since and um, many funny stories happened. So, so when, for example, so I said it was around the first time, the, the time I started publishing. So there, at the time, the, the American Mathematical Society, they had a database of all the math papers and they would match papers to authors automatically. And sometimes the algorithm would fail and then they would write an email to the authors and say, can you please identify your papers amongst the following list? And so like after I published my first paper, I got this AMS email and, and the paper I had to decide whether it, I had to tell them whether it was mine or not was the Nobel lecture. <laughs> so that was the first time they got a degree. <laughs> and, uh, and then what happens is, so, so, you know, if you're a Nobel laureate, then, you know, many people want to, you know, talk to you. And so you don't put your email address on your webpage. 
And that means that whenever you know there's you know uh, like a college being opened somewhere and they want to have a Nobel laureate as a speaker, they ask the secretary to invite David Gross, the physicist, and then they you know search the internet until they find the email address of David Gross, the physicist. And if I wanted to open an Indian college every week, I could. <laughs> it's a bit an exaggeration, but 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 I I, I frequently get those invitations, and uh, and you know then I forward them to David Gross, and. Um, yeah, I have this heuristic. When, when I'm invited to a conference and the invitation says that I can fly first class, then, then I forward it to David Gross because it's probably not. They probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sadly, also yeah. Edward Witten was not your PhD student as well. No, but it is true that Google has this feature where when you put up like a person, then they will like show the organic results, but then they will show this info box where they automatically summarize information about the person. And at one point of time, I have a screenshot, uh, when you Googled for Jens Eisert, there was a picture of Jens when he was young, and then there was a list of, you know, his PhD students, and the Nobel laureate was among, <laughs> was among that list. So that was funny. I think, by the way, that, okay, so I told all my honorary stories how I always declined the invitation that I suspected did not mean me. I kind of suspected once I accepted uh, David Cross. I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, really probe, but, you know, once I think I accepted. And it is, uh, there is this, um, there is this, uh, uh, you know, this event that, that, that Google organizes, or maybe, maybe it's no longer regular, but they had this, like, Sci-Fu event where they invited all, you know, the biggest people in science to come to the campus on, you know, Google's time and eat their good food and discuss. So, and so they don't tell you why they invite you, you know, because it's just, it should mix people. So I got this email from Google and say, yeah, we would really, I kind of suspect they didn't mean me. And then in my, in my honor, I wrote back saying, you know, there's two David Grosses, but kind of implied that I would accept an invitation if it were in fact extended. And then they they confirmed that they, you know, they confirmed the invitation and the other David Gross was not there. But of course, the most likely explanation is that they meant him kind of were embarrassed and invited me anyway, and then the real David Gross didn't come. Yeah. Well, that was the one time, I think, where I, where I probably took advantage of the similarity of names. That, that makes a lot of sense. Who can, who can blame you? I, 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 <laughs> I could think of a few people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's... I have another David Crow story, but I, this is off the record. All right, I think at this point we can probably stop. Thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. I mean, we got through a lot of content and I hope that people will enjoy some of the conversation. <laughs>